0: and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: A quick warning. This episode contains discussions of anti-black violence and police brutality.
2: So can you do your intro one more time, I'm sorry. Sure, no problem. Uh, my name is Treva B. Lindsay, and I'm a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at The Ohio State University.
1: In July, 2015, a few months after Kendrick Lamar released to Pimp a Butterfly, Dr. Lindsay was one of hundreds of organizers and activists who were in Cleveland at a conference called the National Convening of the Movement for Black Lives, held on the campus of Cleveland State University. At the time, the youth driven protest movement the world would come to know as Black Lives Matter was only about two years old.
2: Over the course of the convening, I went to workshops, I went to lectures, we danced together, we sang together, we built together, and it felt like such a beautiful moment.
1: The last day of the conference was a Sunday. The next day, as people began to make their way back home, texts and tweets started to fly about an incident in progress at a bus stop across the street from the Cleveland State campus. Cleveland Transit Police had pulled a black 14-year-old boy off a bus and taken him into custody. They said he was intoxicated. Dr. Lindsay and other participants from the conference joined the crowd forming near the bus stop where the boy had been placed in the back of a police cruiser.
2: And for whatever it was, we were like, why don't you just call his parents? Like, this is, this is not something that needs this arrest. And more and more police officers are coming and it becomes this increasingly hostile and aggressive response. Back up. Back up. We see people starting to get sprayed um, with what I mean was pepper spray.
1: The people on the street linked arms and formed a barrier to prevent the cops from driving off with the boy. It was a tense moment that could have gotten worse. But by then, the boy's mother had arrived at the scene. Her son was moved from the police cruiser to an ambulance and then released unharmed into his mother's custody. No one was arrested that day.
2: And when this happens, we finally get confirmation that it's happening. We're all at different places on this kind of corner and we just start thinking, we gonna be all right. We, I mean, it just happens organically. And as we're singing it, I kid you not, it is one of the most shocking moments. A butterfly literally appears some from somewhere. I don't know from where. I'm like, did someone just have like a butterfly in a jar? And they released it at this moment. And it's this moment that stays with me and reminds me at the moments when I feel the most dejected and most hopeless that there are these moments of victory and that song was a rallying cry at some points but it was also a song of affirming that the work we do deeply matters well
1: From higher ground it's the big hit show I'm Alex Papadimos The song All Right instantly aligned Kendrick and the entire To Pimp a Butterfly album with the growing movement to defend black lives from police violence and systemic oppression. That was the use that history had for it. Which makes it easy to forget that, in the months leading up to the album's release, people had accused Kendrick of failing to show up properly for that movement and that moment. In this episode, how a song that almost didn't make the album became the anthem of an uprising. Chapter 4, All Right.
3: Black music in America has long been expected to fulfill, to hit all kinds of notes.
1: This is Rawia Khmer, a contributing editor at Pitchfork and a professor at Syracuse University.
3: So on the one side, there is, you know, the expectation that Black music is providing us with a sort of celebratory freedom-based look at history, but then there's also constantly, and we see this happen over and over, um, internal tensions about what that means, who a Black artist is responsible to. And that's one of the things I think that makes this album in particular so compelling and so appealing is that we're watching someone connect the dots in real time for himself, right? We're watching someone figure it out just as we are.
1: When To Pimp a Butterfly is released in March of 2015, it turns out to be a cutting and complicated meditation on what it's like to be a young and suddenly famous black man in a country that remains racist. As deeply personal as the album is, it also feels like Kendrick addressing the historical moment head on. So it's every bit the Kendrick album people have been waiting for. A musically and thematically compelling follow-up to 2012's Good Kid Mad City that also seems to speak directly to the dawn of the Black Lives Matter era. I
4: think that he had established himself in 2012 as a person who had the capacity to write himself large, if you know what I mean.
1: New York Times writer and critic Wesley Morris. He can
4: take these very personal stories about life in Compton and make them seem nationally black, right? Good Kid, Mad City was the sort of album that when shit hit the fan, <laughs> it was it was Kendrick who I think people thought had the capacity to represent the moment
1: of impact. But in the period leading up to the release of To Pippa Butterfly, before anyone had heard the whole thing, Kendrick put out two songs from the album as advanced singles. I, released in the fall of 2014, and The Blacker the Berry, released in February of 2015. They're both good songs, but for different reasons, they were both initially received as problematic political statements. Out of step, and maybe even out of touch. This tale of two singles begins in 2012. On February 26 of that year, in the city of Sanford, Florida, George Zimmerman shot Trayvon Martin, an unarmed black 17-year-old who'd been visiting relatives in the gated community where Zimmerman also lived. That month, Kendrick was on the road. He and ASAP Rocky were the opening acts on Drake's Club Paradise tour. Kendrick was watching TV on the tour bus when he saw the news about Martin's death. Lyrics came to him almost immediately
5: been feeling this way since I was 16, came to my senses. You never liked this anyway. Fuck your friendship, I meant it. I'm African American. I'm African, I'm black as the moon. Heritage of a small village, part of my residence. Came from the bottom of mankind. My hair is snappy, my dick is big, my nose is rounded wide. You hate me, don't you? You hate my people, your plan is to terminate my culture. You fucking need for I want you to recognize that I'm a proud monkey.
1: The rhymes he started writing that night on the tour bus would ultimately become the blacker the berry a song in which Kendrick would speak more directly to issues of race and American racism than he ever had before. But this stuff was personal, too. In a 2015 interview with Rolling Stone, Kendrick detailed his own history with the police, including two instances of cops holding him and his friends at gunpoint. He said, quote, They never met me in their life, but since I'm a kid in basketball shorts and a white T-shirt, they want to slam me on the hood of the car and he talked about how angry and violated those incidents made him feel. That same year, in an interview with The Guardian, Kendrick said, quote, I am Trayvon Martin, you know? I'm all of these kids. But Kendrick didn't release The Black or the Berry after the shooting in 2012. Or in 2013, after George Zimmerman was found innocent of killing Trayvon thanks to Florida's infamous Stand Your Ground law. The song went unreleased for three years, until February of 2015. By then, Kendrick had already released another, very different song as the first single from To Butterfly. That song, called I, dropped in September of 2014. Not counting guest spots on other people's records, it was the first new Kendrick song released since the killing of Trayvon Martin, as well as the killings of Eric Garner in New York City in July 2014 and Michael Brown Jr. in Ferguson, Missouri in August. And whatever people were looking for from Kendrick in the aftermath of those painful moments, a song like I was not quite it. My name's
6: Rocky. That's R-A-H-K-I. I'm a music producer, drummer,
1: bass player, keyboard player, you know, all those things. Rocky's previous credits include producing the Good Kid Mad City bonus track Black Boy Fly for Kendrick. In 2013, Rocky played Kendrick some long, psychedelic funk jams he'd recorded in Virginia with his brother's band. I started playing
6: him these, these records, and he flipped out, and he was like, this is what I'm looking for. I need you for the next album. Can you get this band out here?
1: Can we, can we do this here? Like, can we?" And I was like,
6: absolutely, let's go.
1: But when it came time to record, rather than jamming out in the studio, Kendrick brought a specific idea to the band he told them he wanted to remake the Isley Brothers hit, That Lady. That Lady was a top 10 hit in 1973, and since then, it's never gone away. The Beastie Boys sampled it. It's even featured in the movie Anchorman. But it's also been heard a lot in TV ads, from a 90s spot for salon-selective shampoo to a weird 2007 Swiffer ad where a jilted broom rebounds with a plastic flamingo. That lady became so omnipresent and so divorced from its origins, it became hard to hear it as what it had been, a black rock song from 1973, driven by younger brother Ernie Isley's wailing fuzz guitar, which flowed through the track like a fast-moving river of lava. For Kendrick, who traveled to St. Louis to personally secure the blessing of Isley Brothers patriarch Ronald Isley, repurposing the groove from that lady was his way of restoring this badass song to its proper place within the canon of black music, as he explained in a 2014 interview with the New York radio station Hot 97. Now we have a
7: generation where you take an Isley Brothers sample, which is so, and now, you know, we're in a world where people consider it pop, and I knew that'd come, of course, you know, but as me as a leader in music, I want to revamp that whole thing. This is this is black. This mm-hmm. is so and y'all kids gotta know this. You feel me? So
1: he was chasing something. You know, he was chasing a sound. He was looking for something. Producer Rocky remembers an excited Kendrick running from the control room to the vocal booth while putting "I" together. I go in the room and I remember before I opened the door, I could kind of hear his
6: vocal, and I remember when like i have been through a whole lot, challenging, but then I heard that. And I had got goosebumps all over my body. I was like, yo, this is cr-. like, I just knew right there. This was like, it was going to be special.
5: i have been through a whole lot. Trial, tribulation, but I know God. Satan want to put me in a bow tie. Pray that the holy water don't go dry. Yeah, yeah. As I look around me. So many motherfuckers want to tell me. But know me go never tell me. In front of a dirty double mirror they felt me. And I love myself. The world is again. will be gone
1: In 2014, hearing Kendrick rap about smiling in the face of adversity and trusting in God took a lot of people by surprise. And for the first time since Kendrick's anointment by rap fans as a generational talent, a new Kendrick Lamar song was met with jokes. On social media, Kendrick was compared to a motivational speaker and even to Macklemore, the white pop rapper who'd publicly apologized a few years earlier after winning a Grammy that even he believed should have gone to Kendrick. The between the lines issue was about tone. The protests touched off by Michael Brown's death were still ongoing that fall in Ferguson and elsewhere. And here was Kendrick, dropping a song with a big, bright, retro pop hook and an upbeat message that could have sprung from the notes app of Will I Am. At minimum, it seemed like questionable timing.
3: So I think a lot of those early responses were you know, sort of based on an entitlement towards Kendrick as a savior or towards Kendrick as um, a a spokesperson.
1: Rawia Khmer again.
3: People expected from him a kind of representation of um, the Black, quote-unquote, inner city, the Black poor. But when he dropped I as a single, critics and fans alike were sort of stumped. Um, It was a little bit of like, where is the political rapper that we were promised? I think it sort of captures
1: the spirit of the duality that Kendrick is dealing with. Critic Wesley Morris points out that there was more to this song than the initial social media reaction would indicate, because with Kendrick, there almost always is.
4: This peppy song with the Isley Brothers sample is real, real deep, You know, on this song, you were talking about dealing with the devil, you know, fighting this urge to be a good child of God and an object of sin or a sinner yourself. And, you know, no matter what, you know, be me an angel or a devil, I love me in a world that, you know, historically, currently is not about loving anybody who looks like me. And the other other thing is that We're dealing with a person who is dealing with his moods and the attitudes about the moods bleed into his moods about being a black American and his feelings about other black Americans. And all of that stuff is all over the album, obviously, but it's
1: especially crystallized in this song. In 2015, Kendrick discussed the true meaning of that sunshiny I love myself hook with Rolling Stone. I know people might think that means I'm conceited or something, he said. No, it means I'm depressed. I've woken up in the morning and felt like shit, feeling guilty, feeling angry, feeling regretful. As a kid from Compton, you can get all the success in the world and still question your worth. He pointed out that on the album, I is a kind of counterweight to the self-lacerating song, You, which is about how difficult it is for Kendrick to love himself. In that song, when he says over and over that loving you is complicated, he's looking in the mirror.
7: So Kendrick, uh, you put out this new single.
1: Here's Kendrick talking to Hot 97's Ebro Darden in 2014.
7: A lot of people who love you, they're taken aback by this single. They think it's too mainstream, too <laughs> soon. Like you you going pop, you going <laughs> top 40 on us. Talk to us about your decision to make this, your single and, and make this type of sound. My initial uh, idea of writing this record for, really it was for two people. I hit Top Dog, see, I wrote a record for the homies that's in the penitentiary right now. Mm. And I also wrote a record for these kids that come up to my show with these slashes on their wrists what? saying they don't want to live no more.
5: Oh, like people who cut themselves. Yeah,
7: yeah, it's, it's serious. And, and people on the inside, they don't feel like they don't got nothing to live for, people on the outside. And I say, okay, these are my homies in the hood. If I say something this blatant, this bold, this simple, they could take reaction from that. They can't they can lock your body, they can't trap your mind for my homies that's in the pen. For the people that's outside, you have some way more to live for. It starts with yourself first, and you won't be thinking all this negative things that's going around in the world.
1: In a January 2015 Billboard cover story, Kendrick described I as a psychological trick he'd played on himself, saying, Quote, Now that I put this song in the atmosphere, what's going to happen? I have to perform it every night for the next three years when we go on tour. Every time I'm in a weird mood or something goes on at home that I can't handle, I've got to perform it anyway. But in that same interview, when asked for his thoughts on the death of Michael Brown and other victims of police violence, Kendrick gave what would become a somewhat notorious answer, saying, quote, I wish somebody would look in our neighborhood knowing that it's already a situation mentally where it's fucked up. What happened to Michael Brown should have never happened. Never. But when we don't have respect for ourselves, how do we expect them to respect us? It starts from within. Don't start with just a rally. Don't start from looting. It starts from within. The following month, Kendrick finally released The Blacker the Berry, the song he'd started writing three years earlier after Trayvon's death. It was everything the song I had not been, dark and uncompromising instead of sunny with production that swirled like a storm. But the song ends on the same self-indicting note Kendrick struck in that Billboard interview, with a lyric that reveals why Kendrick starts the song by calling himself the year's biggest
5: hypocrite.
1: That last lyric is Kendrick turning his anger inward. But especially coming on the heels of the Billboard interview, this lyric struck many people as tone deaf, ignorant of systemic racism as one of the catalysts for gang violence, and even as an inadvertent echo of conservative talking points about Black-on-Black crime. Here again is Wesley Morris.
4: Black people telling Black people that the reason that they're in the circumstances they're in is because of choices that they've made is a thing you can say to an individual Black person, but to take that message, knowing everything that many of us should at least know about the way this country has functioned and continues to function, it's very hard to make these sort of blanket indictments of us as being our own problem. And I think if you're Kendrick Lamar and you have lived the life that he lived, from where he sits, he's looking at it from a completely different vantage. Right? I mean he also isn't celebrating the life that he lived. And I think that for a rapper is very unusual. You know, he, he is talking about gangbanging in a way that is so rueful and he has to almost give himself another personality to deal with it, to express it. And, you know, he is throwing our business out in the street and I think there's a way in which for black people that has always been uncomfortable to like have these conversations about who we are and how we should act in a space in which other people can hear us talk about these things. It was never comfortable when W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington were going back and forth this way. It was never comfortable when Malcolm X and Martin Luther King or, you know, the, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was going back and forth with the Nation of Islam. It's it's not fun watching John Legend and Kanye West sort of go back and forth about Kanye West's behavior, right? There's a long history of this, and I think the idea that Kendrick is, like, having these conversations in his art is really important. And the idea that he is asking these questions of his Black listenership, regardless of how many different non-Black people buy this album... Or experience this album. These are important questions that we still have to ask. <sighs> I would love to see some Black Lives Matter protests show up you know at one in one of these neighborhood shootings that don't involve police but involve other black people. Because I think that would that would also send a message. But we have so politicized our own lives and deaths, That we can't even successfully talk about what it means for some of us to die an unnatural death because another black person is responsible for it. That is crazy to me. And Kendrick knows it too because he was on the ground when it was happening.
8: I didn't have time for Kendrick Lamar does pop for a a Sprite commercial, right? Whatever that was, like, you know, just
1: people were dying in the streets. Back in 2014, when I first dropped and Twitter started accusing Kendrick of having abdicated his role as a revolutionary, Wesley Lowry's attention was elsewhere. Wesley is now a correspondent for CBS News. But back then, he was a national politics reporter covering Congress for The Washington Post and just
8: so happened to be available to get on an airplane and go to Ferguson, Missouri, after the death of Michael Brown.
1: Just before noon on August 9th, 2014, an unarmed 18-year-old named Michael Brown stole some boxes of cigarillos from a convenience store, and a radio call went out to police in the area.
0: It's gonna be a black male in a white T-shirt. He's running toward Quick Trip. He took a whole box of Swisher cigars.
1: Shortly afterward, Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson stopped Brown and a friend on the street. There are differing accounts of what happened next, but a struggle ensued, and it ended with Wilson shooting Brown six times. Brown died at the scene around 12.02 p.m. His body was left on the street for nearly four hours.
8: No one really knew what happened. Yet a community of people who looked out their window, stepped outside, saw a teenager dead in the street, And no one would explain to them why. No one explained to them what happened.
5: No justice! No peace! No justice!
8: And so it was completely unsurprising that people were furious, they were upset, they were grieving, they were emotional. And as I got on the ground and started asking questions and starting talking to people, you realized that this confusion was just so widespread that the police and the elected officials there just had not provided any information. To the people who were there, and and how how eminently reasonable was their request? Hello, I would like to know why there's a dead teenager in my street. It was clear that the anger and the pain in the streets, it was about Michael Brown, but it wasn't about Michael Brown. It, It was about years of frustration and pain and mistreatment and that this had just become the boil-over point for it. And as I talked to person after person after person, it just, it became very obvious that these folks were not going to leave the streets, and that this was going to be something that had to be reckoned with.
1: In the days and weeks and months to come, Ferguson became a locus of protest, as thousands of people filled the streets, demanding answers and accountability. If you're in the street, you need to exit the
5: street immediately.
3: Are you moving?
1: Wesley ended up spending close to three months in Ferguson and says that one thing you didn't see on the news was the extent to which ordinary life went on, even amid the heightened atmosphere of the protests. There were nights where
8: nothing happened. There were nights where it was chaos and we all thought we were gonna die. How varying in tone it could be. Nights that were celebratory. Nights that were hilarious, because you get this many black people around each other and we start doing funny stuff, right? And so it's, it, the, the, what people don't understand about protest is protest is community. It, it's people who are coming out of their house into the same space, and they're mixing, and they're matching, and they're talking, that suddenly you have 100 people, 1,000 people, 2,000 people who are surrounded by like-minded people. They're making plans, they're, they're asking people on dates. That's not to say this wasn't hyper serious. That's not to say there wasn't chaos. The nights of tear gas and rubber bullets.
5: Don't do it! Don't do it. They are. suffering! It's, it's, it's children!
8: The story of Ferguson is the story of America. I think for a lot of Americans, the election of Barack Obama led them to believe that it was time to pat ourselves on the back. This says something so good about us that we would do this thing and we have done this thing. I think for a lot of Americans, especially black Americans, it expanded the what they now
1: believed should and could be possible, and what the pace of change should be. By 2014, many young people were watching the promises of that moment collide with more intractable historical realities.
8: And so you take this generation of young people who are told that they could believe that this country could be different, that the country could change, and then they're seeing things play out in front of them that horrify them. And they're saying, enough is enough. We're not doing this anymore. What I think people don't understand about protests is that they look at a protest and they say, Why are these people in the streets? Why don't they go vote? Why don't they call their senator? The person who takes to the street, who puts their body on the line, they do so because they've exhausted all other opportunities and all other options. And they don't have time to wait for next November's election. They're stepping into the street right now because this problem is so urgent. And what happens in this moment is that the collective psyche of young black America snaps. We are not waiting another day. This is urgent because if Trayvon Martin could be killed and Jordan Davis could be killed and Eric Gardner could be killed and now Michael Brown could be killed, it might be me next. It might be my brother next. And so we see in this moment a confluence of the politics, a confluence of the technology, and then that creating an urgency that just could not be bottled up.
1: I asked Wesley what he remembered about the role of music at the Ferguson protests.
8: There was a desire, very quickly, for an expression musically, through art. I remember the night that Darren Wilson was not indicted, the night they announced he would not be charged. I remember driving through the streets of St. Louis and Ferguson, and the hip-hop station playing Michael Jackson's They Don't Really Care About Us. And then the next morning, waking up, and they were playing A Change Is Gonna Come, Sam Cooke, and they had it interspliced
1: with some of the protest information. A few days after Michael Brown was killed, the rapper J. Cole released the heartbroken SoundCloud single Be Free, which he dedicated to Brown and, quote, every young black man murdered in America, whether by the hands of white or black. For the most part though, the soundtrack in Ferguson was mainstream hip hop radio. Big hits, stuff that was defiant in the way of so many rap songs, but not necessarily overtly political.
8: It was total mumble rap. That was Ray Schremerd, it wasn't uh, Black Beatles yet. The big Ray Schremerd song out was No Flex Zone. It was like a very like young mumble rap period in 14, and that was very there. But then also none of that quite hit the moment. And so there was just this feeling of like something's going to happen. We didn't know what it was going to be, but like something's going to happen.
1: After Good Kid, Mad City, Kendrick could presumably have worked with any producer he wanted to. But the production credits on To Pimp a Butterfly are not a roll call of household names. Aside from Flying Lotus and Drake's regular collaborator Boy Wanda, who worked on one song each, there just aren't a lot of outside people contributing beats, period. Instead, the music is by people like Mark Soundwave Spears, who's been working with Kendrick since he went by k and people like Thundercat and Terrace Martin, and a lot of if-you-know-you-know kind of names from the L.A. music scene. Joseph Leimberg, Knowledge, Taz Arnold from Syrah Creative Partners. But there's one giant exception. One song co-produced by a guy who is bigger than hip-hop. Pharrell Williams. The Pharrell Williams. Skateboard P. As in Pharrell, Blurred Lines, Happy, Milkshake, Slave for You, Hot in Here, Rock Your Body, Excuse Me Miss, Drop It Like It's Hot, Hollaback Girl, Frontin', Get Lucky, You Don't Have to Call Williams. Pharrell had produced one song for Kendrick on Good Kid Mad City, and in 2014, he met with Kendrick again. Producer Soundwave explains.
9: All right, for Pharrell, usually with us, there's two meetings with Pharrell. It's the beginning and then the end. It's like we would go to Pharrell to get that little kick creatively. It's like, Because Pharrell's one of those guys who, still to this day, is going to sit down with you, bring out his keyboard, play notes that are just going to blow your head away,
1: and actually create the beat with you right there in front of you. So Pharrell's making beats, and Kendrick is starting to write to them right there in the room. Then, at one point during that meeting, a record executive named Sam Taylor, who worked for Sony Music at the time, took Soundwave aside. I just remember my guy,
9: Sam Taylor,
1: said... Hey, come check this
9: one out. He takes me to another room.
1: Sam Taylor wanted to play Soundwave a track. Pharrell had originally made it for another artist who'd ended up passing on it. Taylor had loved the beat, and he had kept it in his back pocket, specifically for Kendrick.
9: And he placed me the skeleton of All Right. And I just remember my jaw drop. It was just like literally just the 808s and the keys. And Pharrell had the melody of, we gonna be all right. I was like, bro, what is this? Oh my goodness, I'm Freaking out, and I immediately run. I was like, Dot, you have to come hear this. He plays it for Dot. Dot stopped everything he was doing and
1: starts to write to all right. You can hear a Pharrell beat from blocks away and know who did it. It's a very specific signature spacious, heart hitting, electronic. His tracks seem to float on cushions of air. It's the opposite of the dense, funk jazz inflected, crowded room sound that rules most of Topimpa Butterfly.
9: The situation with All Right was, it was super amazing, super fitting, sonically, it was not, like, no matter what we did, it just could not fit with the rest of the album. But we loved that record so much that I said, okay, I'm not letting this record die. I literally have to go back in, last second of the album, like, literally at the crunch time, I think we had one more day,
1: and added drums to it. That same day, Soundwave brought in another member of Tupimba Butterfly's core production team, Terrace Martin, to add a sax part to the song. And I just remember about three hours,
9: just me and Terrace locked in that room. We came out, I think we got something. We played it for Kendrick, and I just remember him, his eyes lit up. It's like we did it. This is finally it.
5: All's my life, I has to fight, nigga. All's my life, I. Hard times like yeah, bad trips like yeah, Nazareth. I'm fucked up, homie. You fucked up, but if God got us, then we gon' be alright, all right. nigga. We gon' be alright, nigga. We gon' be alright, we gon' be
7: alright. Do you hear me? Do you feel me? We gon' be alright, nigga. We gon' be alright, huh? We gon' be alright, nigga. We gon' be alright. Do you hear me? Do you feel me? We gon' be alright.
9: And when it came on, I was like. That's it. We all put our hands up like this is it. We had no idea it was going to be what it was going to be, but we just knew that felt perfect with the rest of the album after that.
1: On the album, All Right immediately follows the song You, arguably the most despairing moment on the record. Not a bad spot for a little air and light, some cautious optimism. But according to Soundwave, All Right came close to not making the track list at all which Kendrick's mixing engineer mixed by Ali says would not have been altogether surprising. You know, he's very surgical when it comes to picking the right songs and the right sequence of an album. The songs might've, they probably can still be
6: hit records today, but if it didn't fit the sequence of the story or the sequence of the album, it's just, it's not it.
1: I sat on that song for months, like six months. Here's Kendrick Lamar talking to me in 2021. Pharrell had did the,
6: the beat and uh, he did the chorus, the alright chorus. That's him on the record. And um, I knew it was a great song, but you know, it could have been just a regular, you know, catchy line here and there, which I can do. And you know, I can freestyle them type of records. But sometimes when something is so good, you know, I, I kind of put it to the side and I just listen to it over and over again. And eventually, you know the right energy was around me and the right message has, you know, was flowing through me and them lyrics came.
5: I'm fucked up, homie. You fucked up. But if God got us, then we gon' be all right. Nigga, we gon' be all right.
4: I think
1: it's a gospel song. New York Times critic Wesley Morris again. He only
4: offers up the conditional if God is gonna be okay with us, then we're gonna be okay. It's gonna be fine the catchy part of the chorus doesn't have anything to do with God, but it's a gospel song. You know, it begins, all my life, I had to fight. He's like quoting the color purple. And he's going to lay the fight down, right? He's just going to just just chill and relax and just like let Jesus take the wheel. There's obviously more to this song in a lot of ways, but the anthemic nature of a thing that you can repeat as a mantra to yourself is really powerful. And, you know, it's about us being in the future, right? It's about us we're going to be. We're not currently okay, but somewhere in the future, like, there's a mountaintop somewhere and we're going to be fine. We're going to be okay. We're going to be welcomed into the kingdom. Yes, 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 yes. But We're also going to be welcomed into the bodega in our neighborhood. We're going to be welcomed into movie theaters and government buildings and courtrooms with the dignity we deserve. We're going to be okay. Might not be today, but it'll be sometime, you know, it's down the road.
1: In the years after All Right came out, the Black Lives Matter movement would force this country to reckon with police violence through protest and other forms of activism. But even back in 2015... Artists like Kendrick were highlighting the same issues that would bring hundreds of thousands of people into the streets in 2020. You could see that happening in the music video, credited to director Colin Tilley and the Lil Homies, a directorial alias for Kendrick and Dave Free. Shot in Oakland and downtown Los Angeles, the black and white video leans into the themes of the moment, juxtaposing shots of Oakland street dancers breaking it down with dreamlike images of Kendrick drifting two different Chevy Camaros Crowdsurfing, held up by his people and sometimes literally walking on air
5: you know we been nervin' down before nigga when i pride was low looking at the world like where do we go nigga and we hate Pope Paul. when they kill us dead in the street for sure nigga i met the preacher's door my knees getting weak and my girl my bro but we gonna be all right nigga we going be all
1: right but in this dream the cops are still ever present establishing that all this magical realist exuberance, all the joy and creative expression we're witnessing, is taking place within hard boundaries. At the end of the video, a white cop pulls up, sees Kendrick dancing on the arm of a streetlight, and shoots him down.
5: Dark nights in my prayers.
1: Kendrick falls for a long time, and in the last shot, he seems to die, with a smile on his face. It's both an expression of the song's message of inexhaustible hope and, in context, a defiant gesture as bold as, say, dancing on top of a vandalized cop car, which is exactly what Kendrick went on to do in June 2015 while opening the BET Awards, rapping All Right from the roof of a spray painted black and white while the American flag billowed on a screen behind him. Whatever All Right had been, it was now a song about police violence, to the dismay of the hip hop heads at Fox News' The Five.
3: Ugh, I don't like it.
1: Future Donald Trump Jr. love interest Kimberly Guilfoyle was not a fan.
3: I get it. That's his right to express himself. Let the free market decide. Personally, it doesn't excite me. It doesn't turn me on. doesn't interest me. I'm
0: not feeling it. And
1: Then, former TV host Geraldo Rivera gave his review.
0: Not helpful at all. This is why I say that hip-hop has done more damage to young African-Americans than racism in recent years. Kendrick would get the last laugh on this one
1: in time-honored hip-hop fashion by slipping samples of Geraldo and Guilfoyle's criticisms into the first two songs on 2017's Damn, the album that put Kendrick one Pulitzer Prize up on Geraldo. But in a way, the whole Geraldo controversy was like another five-star review for To Pimp a Butterfly. You know you're doing something right, as a rapper or any kind of artist, if a bunch of Fox News panelists feel obligated to tell you you're part of the problem. Within months of Topimpa Butterfly's release in the spring of 2015, All Right had become one of those songs you heard people chanting any time they took to the streets in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. All Right producer Soundwave remembers the first time he heard it happening.
9: I just remember it just popped all on my timeline. And I was like, wait, what are they saying? And I just got chills in my body. Like, yeah, this is the moment that you are creating for. us. like you want the world to feel the pain that we feel. And so for them to feel that and express it the way that we wanted it
1: to feel, it's like an indescribable feeling. Soundwave sent the clip to the group chat. He wrote, I don't know what we did, but we did something special. He says Kendrick replied with the face facepalm emoji.
9: Like, bro, oh, this is crazy. I don't, like... How did this happen? Be all right. be all right. be all right. It's something we did a long time ago, but years later it still,
1: like, makes right. sense in the world. Be all right. This is all right as heard in 2016 in downtown L.A. during the protests following the police shootings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. For it to become the statement, was like, hell yeah, like,
9: hell yeah. This is Thundercat. That was wild to watch, to see those earlier protests and they're like chanting that. And then like, to see it met with violent
1: force, like, you know, the things that you only see in history books, like, man, like, you know, this is crazy. And here's the all right chant as heard at a police shooting protest in New York City. And this is Chicago after the election of Donald Trump.
5: It's
9: probably the most bittersweet thing in the world. It's like, it hurts. It's like,
1: how do you enjoy it? Everybody wants to make a song so powerful it never goes away. But to have a song that never goes away for this reason? Because the police keep killing black Americans?
9: It's like, I'm happy I can be of service, I can help in any way
1: that I can, but at the same time, I just wish that we didn't have to chant that. In 2020, All Right rang out in Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, D.C., during the George Floyd protests.
9: Kendrick was on a mission, for sure. He, he grew us all up during that time period.
1: Kendrick's business partner and co-director of the All Right video, Dave Free. It was just important, man. That shit was like, I remember looking at that, I was like, man, I was like, words are powerful.
9: You know, they're super, super powerful. You have to use these things correctly. You know what I mean? Like, you have to. You have a responsibility to.
1: Maybe most crucially, All Right wasn't Kendrick handing down a Black Lives Matter song made to order. There's nothing didactic about it. Nothing about it says, bump this at your protest. It ends up being perfect for the moment because its status as an anthem is conferred upon it by people. The same people who are part of this leaderless horizontal movement, this popular uprising. It becomes an anthem because people need it and they can use it. It was the right message. It was the right track for the right moment. CBS News reporter Wesley Lowry has covered a lot of protests in recent years. But the moment he realized the power of all right was at the University of Missouri in November 2015. A group of student activists, responding to a string of racist incidents at Mizzou, had just succeeded in pressuring the university's president to resign. Afterwards, they'd marched across campus and gathered in an auditorium. Somebody pulled out their phone and played all right. And... Everyone knew every
8: word. The jumping and the moshing and the chanting and the hugging. This expression of reassurance, of this black reassurance, that we've got got us. We're going to be all right. And seeing it deployed in that context, on the ground, in that moment, changed the way I've heard that song every single time I've ever heard it since then. I have cried in the club (laughs) listening to the song. Now I remember the backlash to it. I remember rolled eyes from older black folks I know, both activists, from editors of mine, from journalists. You know, what is this? This is profane and doesn't make sense. I got us, you got us. What, what is all of this? You know, this is no, we shall overcome. I remember all of that, but like I said, this is a movement that wasn't particularly interested and doing things the way you wanted to do it for the sake of, uh, you know, for the sake of tradition, for the sake of polish. And I think the power of that track, the power of that record, was that it captured a real authenticity, that he wasn't preaching to the kids in the street, that he was testifying on their behalf. This is an era of witnessing other people's lived experiences. When you think about what the cell phone camera did, It allowed tens of millions of white Americans to see interactions with the police they would never see. And in that moment, with that window open, it's even more powerful, I think it's even more important for artists like Kendrick and others to push their way through that window. Now see my experience. See how I process this. See how I'm thinking about it. I think... It's going to be very hard to look back at this moment and point to any other artistic project that met the moment and the message of this movement
1: the way To Pimp a Butterfly did. In 2021, I asked Kendrick what it was like to see the public take a song that almost didn't make the album and turn it into an anthem.
6: It's a surreal moment. Um, not only the placement, you know, that it has in the world and, and the timing, but for me as the artist, you know, creating these moments. And then when it hit and I see people, you know, being inspired from them, being uplifted, you know, and, and having a positive influence on what they were going through and what we all were going through. That, uh... That's a feeling that you know fills me up, you know, wholeheartedly, because I know I'm not only making records that I enjoy, but these records are changing people's lives. And you know, the 16 year old, 14 year old that was out there will be able to say, 30 years from now, I remember when I was out there singing that record. You know, that was my guy. You know, he made that record, and he was for us.
1: Next time on the Big Hit Show.
5: Here's your oatmeal and water. Get the charts done.
0: (laughs) We got two weeks.
1: The finishing touches. Felt like I had rung it to Out Loud. Like, I was just like, I have nothing left. I was like, oh, this
9: is special. Like, this is tearing at me. It's tearing at my soul. I don't know what this is. Because it was at a point in this album where he was getting lost. He was getting buried in the concept and the whole idea.
1: And Kendrick finds a piece of tape that changes everything. When Kendrick heard it, he was like, oh, shit. I said, of course you can use it. Take the motherfucker.
5: Use it. I didn't know where
9: he was going with it until I walked in on him having a conversation with Pac and It freaked me out. I was like, bro, what the hell is this?
1: From higher ground, this is The Big Hit Show. It's written and hosted by me, Alex Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Taylor Jones and Sabrina Fang. Our production assistant is Stella Hartman. Alex McInnes is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Fact-checking by Savannah Wright and Nicole McNulty. Studio direction and theme music by Dan Leone. The executive producer is Ben Adair. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Jenna Levin is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Music licensing by Search Party Music. Special thanks to Joe Paulson and Eric Spiegelman.